Isaac Watts was acclimating to a new life. Previously, he was a pastor in England until a fever forced the minister to retire from the pulpit and start primarily writing poetry and hymns. And while Watts likely didn't realize it at the time, this undesired career change actually changed the course of Christian congregational music forever, at least in the English-speaking world. Watts was a trendsetter for his time. If you thought that adding an electric guitar or overhead projector was controversial for music in church, just wait until you hear what Isaac Watts did. In 1719, he published a hymnal, and in it, Watts diverged from the traditional practice of church music, which was strictly adapting scripture to song. In other words, traditionally at the time, the only lyrics set to music and sung in church were verbatim or word for word from the Holy Bible. Watts found this practice monotonous. To him, there was a lack of joy and emotion among the congregants as they sang. And so alternatively, what Watts did was controversial. He added and incorporated his own reflections or interpretations to Scripture into his lyrics. This was the basis for his hymns, and it was controversial at the time, but their popularity is why this trend became commonplace for Christian songwriters even to this day. Watts would later be known as the godfather of English hymnody, with many of his songs still being sung in churches today. Perhaps you know the songs, Oh, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, or When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. But in that 1719 hymnal, Watts interpreted the latter half of Psalm 98 to pen yet another one of his well-known hymns, which is called The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. This popular hymn was about the second coming of Christ. How many of you ever have ever sung the Messiah's coming and kingdom? I'm confused. We sing this hymn all the time whenever we're in Advent season. Let me just read the first verse to you. The Messiah's coming and kingdom goes like this. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. This morning marks the beginning of the Advent season, which is about remembering and celebrating the arrival of Christ in our world. And while our focus usually narrows to his first arrival, namely that of an infant in a lowly town in Palestine, the Advent season is also meant to be a time that we recall that Jesus said he was going to come again. A second arrival, a second Advent, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. In Revelation, Jesus told John of Patmos, and behold, I am coming soon. Jesus came once. Jesus will come again. And it's appropriate for our first Sunday of Advent to reflect on this good news, this joy to the world. We're kicking off Advent this year by talking about the second one before we get too fixated on the first one, because the first Advent shouldn't have the monopoly on the church's attention. In my opinion, the second Advent is not talked a lot about in church. Or if it is, it's muddled by irrelevant chatter we need to regularly and routinely speak of Christ's second coming in a healthy manner because we must not forget and be taken off guard if Jesus were to arrive again in our lifetimes. 
And so in Mark chapter 13, Mark tells us that Peter, James, John, and Andrew are having a little heart-to-heart with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. In my mind, I picture the four men just casually talking with Jesus, with one another, casually, and then one of them just casually shifts the conversation to the end of the world. (laughs) We talk about that all the time at parties, the end of the world, but when you're talking with Jesus, he just talks about the end of the world, and so he says, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished And while there's much to unpack from Jesus' answer, you go go back and read Mark chapter 13. I want to focus on the end of Jesus' answer when he talks about a magnificent uh, entrance, which is the grand finale to the end of time. He says that after an unspecified amount of time of agony and suffering, the celestial bodies that provide light in the universe will suddenly go dark. This apocalyptic language should not be surprising for those who knew their Old Testament. It wouldn't be Speaking specifically of the prophets, many of them spoke of the future day of the Lord. Perhaps you've read that in your Old Testament, the day of the Lord. And on that fateful day, God would bring judgment against his enemies and vindicate his people. This event was usually accompanied by phenomenal, extraordinary events in nature like astronomical darkness. Ezekiel 32.7 says, The Lord says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. The lights in the sky will no longer function as the Creator intended, but this is all by design as it signals for someone's entrance. An ancient figure will break onto the scene, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will be noticeable, it will be obvious, he will be visible and heard, and all those who survived the day of the Lord will see this heavenly being known as the Son of Man. Again, for those that have read the Old Testament, particularly Daniel chapter 7, you've met this figure before. After his time in the lion's den, the prophet Daniel, he had a vision, we believe, of the end of time. He had a vision of the last days when he said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus borrows this language from Daniel, and he provides some more details pertaining to this apocalyptic figure. And according to Jesus, this figure, this son of man, will appear in the sky, and he'll command the armies of heaven to gather the faithful from across the world and bring them to him. He mentions the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is meant to evoke the farthest reaches of creation. None of the faithful will be missed or lost. And while more likely could be said, Jesus just puts a period right there. He ends the discussion. He doesn't allow any follow-up questions from the four disciples waiting on bated breath. What Jesus has said for him is sufficient concerning this event. But the tendency for many of us is we want to quickly go back and comb through every word Jesus just said looking for specifics. Like the disciples, we want details. We want times, locations, dates, descriptions. It's like everyone but Jesus is playing a grandiose game of Clue when it comes to the end of time. This date after this event with this explanation but that's not the top priority for Jesus when it comes to his followers. In his answer to disciples, Jesus is not giving them a play-by-play, a moment-by-moment itinerary for the future. Jesus is more concerned with his disciples being deceived or tricked than them having an exact itinerary for the future. 
Notice where Jesus' heart is at this morning. We want details. Jesus wants disciples. And discipleship about the end times is less about exact knowledge of the events, but more about being found faithful when they occur. The most important takeaways from what Jesus has said in Mark chapter 13, I believe, are two things. Jesus is coming back, and Jesus will find the faithful. While notably, Jesus never self-identifies as the Son of Man in this conversation, though if you read Mark and his other, other parts of Mark, you'll notice that he does identify as the Son of Man, but just not here. Mark, the disciples, and the majority of Christians have connected the dots between Jesus and this Old Testament figure. We believe this prophecy is about Jesus' return. There will come a day when Jesus will return in a noticeable and phenomenal way. And he'll command his angelic servants to bring the faithful that are remaining on earth to himself. The dates and details are trivial, secondary in nature when compared to the joyful revelation that Jesus is destined to one day return and gather his people to himself. But to me, this is just my personal opinion, the subject of Jesus' return along with the rest of eschatology and the study of the last things, it's actually my least favorite theological topic because I, often, I believe it often breeds either slothful Christians and not active ones or distracted Christians and not engaged ones. Slothful Christians, not active ones, or distracted Christians, not engaged ones. Laziness or distractions are the two greatest threats revolving around the second advent. When details, when the details become too high of a priority, when an unhealthy fascination with the specifics takes hold, discipleships and being a witness of Jesus takes a back seat. There's a time and a place for discussions and even debates about the last things that incorporates more texts from Scripture than Mark chapter 13, but in my humble opinion, harping over the details or lack thereof is a fatal distraction of what Jesus calls us to actually do, which is to be engaged in the ministry until he returns. It's much like a man who bought a hunting dog, and eager to see how he could perform, he took him out to track a bear. No sooner had they gotten into the woods than the, the dog picked up the trail, and suddenly he stopped and he sniffed the ground and headed in a new direction. He had caught the scent of a deer that had crossed the bear's path. But a few moments later, he halted again, and this time smelling a rabbit that had crossed the path of the deer, and so on, and so on, until finally the breathless hunter caught up with the dog, only to find him barking triumphantly down the hole of a rabbit's burrow. Our rabbit trails on the subject of Jesus' return can distract or lead us away from the mission as Christians if we're not careful, church. We sing, let every heart prepare him room. This lyric is not about preparing room for a baby Jesus because there wasn't vacancy for Mary and Joseph in the Holiday Inn Express in Bethlehem. This lyric points to the reality that we need to be making room for Jesus in our hearts right now before he comes back. We as a Christian community are called to prepare ourselves for when Jesus is planned to return. I believe this takes the form of discipleship. We can't prepare him room if we're distracted by ironing out the specifics and not being faithful to what Jesus commanded us to do while we wait. We're commanded to do things like love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our minds. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to make disciples of all the nations. Is it wrong to be curious about how Jesus will come back? No. Is it sinful to want to know more? I don't believe so. 
but I think it can be dangerous if not managed. I'm convinced that our energy is better spent doing what Jesus said, to be found doing what Jesus said. Discipleship is necessary because it wards off this prospect of being tricked by false teachers, which Jesus warns his disciples about. Discipleship prepares us to withstand the hardships that accompany the birth pains that precede Christ's return. Discipleship ensures that among the things the Son of Man's angels find are the faithful, they'll find us being faithful. Don't get obsessed with the details. Get obsessed with being a disciple of Jesus. And while the specifics are likely to change, you can guarantee two things. Jesus is coming back one day, and the faithful will be brought to him. Discipleship is imperative because it keeps us from being distracted, from being faithful. But I also believe it keeps us from being lazy in the waiting period. Jesus said concerning that day or the hour, no one but the God the Father knows, no human being, no angels. Amazingly, God the Son doesn't know when his return date is. And while we can discuss how God the Son doesn't know, we can talk about that later. But the important detail is that no one will never, no one will know when the second advent will come. We'll never know when the second advent will take place. It'll never be on our calendars. And to explain this, Jesus tells a small parable about a homeowner and his servants. A man is planning to go on vacation, and just because the man is away doesn't mean the normal household chores are to be neglected. In fact, the man goes out of his way to instruct his hired help to be busy at work around his house while he's absent. He particularly reminds his doorkeeper to be vigilant for his return. However, the homeowner leaves and doesn't divulge to his servants his return date or hour. He doesn't tell them when he's coming back. However, that they know that their boss expects them to find them busy when he does inevitably return. The risk is too great for him to come back and find them napping instead of being productive. And like all parables, this is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Just like the servants, we are meant to not be found sleeping, but to being active. Not napping, but being productive. Just like the homeowner who left for an undisclosed period of time, Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of God the Father for an unrevealed season, leaving us to do the work he has given us to do. We're not given a timeline for how long our mission is to last. We're not allowed a glimpse onto God's calendar. The date will always elude us, but it's never to, never to trouble us. We should be more concerned as to whether we're found working and active when that day and the hour rolls around. William Miller, he was an American farmer and army captain who served in the War of 1812. And in 1816, Miller converted to Christianity and eventually became a Baptist minister. And after 14 years of studying scripture, mainly the books of Daniel and Revelation, Miller believed he had solved the mysteries of Daniel's prophecies. And in 1831, Miller predicted that the second coming of Christ will take place within a year of March 21st, 1843. His ideas were published in a book in 1836 and gained much notoriety during his lifetime. Miller became famous because of his teachings concerning the second coming of Christ. His followers numbered in the hundreds and thousands with many quitting their jobs, leaving their unharvest fields, closing their stores, and giving away their possessions, utterly convinced Christ's return was imminent and sure. His critics labeled his movement as Millerism and his followers as Millerites. 
But 1821-1844 came and went. Miller's year-long calculation resulted in nothing happening. But Miller later recalculated and said April 18th, 1844 was the actual date for Jesus' arrival. However, this date came and went as well. And finally, after studying yet again, he settled on the date of Christ's second advent as officially October 22nd, 1844. Well, Tuesday, October 22nd, 1844, which was filled with much fanfare and excitement by the Millerites. But like the previous dates, October 22nd came and went, and nothing happened. History now remembers this date as the Great Disappointment. Many of the Millerites abandoned Millerism after this incident. Those who stayed in the movement called themselves the Remnant and actually became the foundations for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which still exists today. But William, William Miller was not the first or the last misguided preacher to forecast the end of the age, but he may have been the most persuasive and notorious in recent church history. The words of Jesus this morning are not meant to be an almanac to use to predict his future arrival. Jesus was never concerned about timing. He was always concerned about discipleship. Because here's the honest truth about Jesus' second advent, and I can't sugar that quote this in any other way. We'll never know for certain when he's coming back. It won't have an advance notice, no advertisements, no announcements. While there will be signs or birth pains of its nearness, ultimately it will happen instantly without warning or indication. But the reason someone like William Miller and other preachers gain popularity is that we believe that if we can, if we can just pencil in on our calendar Jesus' second advent, we can get our hearts, our souls, our affairs, or whatever in order just in the nick of time. However, we'll never actually have that opportunity. But another reason someone like Miller gains notoriety is because, honestly, the second coming of Christ is scary. It's scary to hear someone talk about with confidence and authority on this topic with concrete information. We believe it soothes our nerves. I think that's the irony, at least for Isaac Watts, to call Joy to the World a song about Jesus' second coming. It's hard to feel joy about the second coming when we aren't told much about it, not told when it's going to happen, and only know that it's accompanied by tribulation and suffering. If we were honest with ourselves and we think of Jesus' return, I think it fills us with dread that we may not be one of the ones that's found awake. The subject of Jesus' second advent is void of any joy as it's filled with worry concerning that unknown day and hour. And maybe that's why we don't talk about it. We just stick with the first one because it has a nice nativity set to show us. If you'll allow as we close, can I offer some thoughts to settle any anxieties we might have? To help us start to view Jesus' second coming with less ominousness, but more like Isaac Watts did, with joy and praise. Can I tell you this morning, church, first, simply be faithful with the task assigned to you. Like the homeowner entrusting different responsibilities to his servants before he departs, Jesus was called, has called us to do different things in our lifetimes in lieu of his physical presence here on earth. What does looking faithful look like for you? What has God called you to do in your lifetime? And realize this, it may not be a calling to full-time vocational ministry. That's okay. Maybe your calling is being faithful, being a faithful witness of Jesus right where you are at your workplace in your family situation, in the school you attend, in the ball team that you're a part of, 
Maybe that's what looking faithful looks like for you. I can't answer it for you. That's between you and God. All the master of the house expected of his servants were to find them to be found diligently working on their assigned tasks when he returned. That's all he wanted to see. And the same goes with the members of Christ's church. Jesus just wants to see us being faithful. Not perfect, but being faithful. Second, our work doesn't make the clock go any faster, nor does it make it go any slower. Disciples should remember that doing the will of God has no relationship to the divine timing. What we do doesn't make God, Jesus, come any sooner or any later. We can't force God's hand and make Jesus return right when we want him to or postpone his arrival. But we're called to be active, engaged, and doing ministry even if it has no bearing on God's timing. Third, we need to be godly insomniacs. This is the only place we'll find the metaphor This is not the only place we'll find the metaphor of sleep when speaking of Jesus' second coming, but it's interesting that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament writers reuse the same analogy. It appears that the worst-case scenario for a disciple is to be found asleep when Jesus comes back. Jesus said, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. Well, we don't want to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Rest and proper sleeping are important forms of self-care, What Jesus is communicating is the state the disciples should be found when Jesus returns. And this goes back to what he said earlier. Jesus wants to find us active and engaged. Jesus wants to find us busy, being obedient, not slacking off on the job. I'm convinced that Jesus would prefer to find us encumbered by the duties of ministry rather than asleep daydreaming about its specifics. We'll be able to rest in eternity when we're reunited with Jesus, but until that day comes, Jesus expects us to be awake and alert, not just looking for his return, but also for how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in a world that needs him. And fourth, this is my last one. Don't abandon the house just because the master is away. I wonder how many have given up on waiting for Jesus to return. Two millennia or so removed from Jesus' own predictions and his ascension, it's not hard to see why. We've been waiting a long time for the second advent, but I believe in a God who keeps his promises. And while our Lord has departed for an undisclosed amount of time, I believe when he said he was going to come again. And while I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime, I'm going to live my life as if it were I read a beautiful story that talked about a gardener of a large estate in northern Italy. He was conducting a tour for a guest through the castle and the beautiful, well-groomed grounds. And as the visitor had lunch with the gardener and his wife, he commented or commended them for the beautiful way that they were keeping the gardens. He asked why, by the way, when was the last time the owner was here? About ten years ago, the gardener replied. The visitor asked, then why do you keep the gardens in such an immaculate, lovely manner? The gardener replied, because I'm expecting him to return. Is he coming this week? The gardener replied, I don't know when he's coming back, but I'm expecting him today. Growing up, my favorite pastime, at least for my brother and I, was playing hide-and-seek with my grandpa Michael. And as was typical in our games, my grandpa was always inadvertently the one searching while my brother and I got to hide. But per the unwritten rules of hide-and-seek, after the seeker had finished counting with their eyes closed, they would always declare, ready or not, here I come. This same principle applies to the Lord's return. Ready or not, he's coming. 
Are we fully prepared? Should that be today? Have we done all we know to do? Have we done all that the Lord has asked us to do? Are we living out our faith and fulfilling the work we've been entrusted with? Do you have a personal relationship with Christ? He may not come today, but then again, he might. When he returns, it will be too late to make any preparations or engage in work left undone. I love this phrase that's credited to Martin Luther. Live as if Christ died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha.